all of our thinking occurs across a huge, very sophisticated and sensitive neural network, all of which depends on the nutrients that we consume and other lifestyle choices like sleep and exercise. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Welcome back to Wisdom for Wellbeing. Today, I am joined by Dr. Delia McCabe. So Dr. McCabe shifted her research focus from clinical psychology to nutritional neuroscience upon discovering nutrition's critical role in mental well-being. Her research into female stress has been published in a number of peer-reviewed journals, and she's regularly a featured expert in the media, and her two books are already translated into four languages. Using her background in psychology combined with evidence-based nutritional neuroscience and neurological strategies, Delia supports behavior change and stress resilience within corporations and for individuals who want to optimize their brain health through online courses, workshops, and tailored events internationally. Having a stressed female brain herself, she now speaks to cultivating calm and enjoying chocolate and yoga to maintain it. What a wonderful combination. Today, we are actually talking about how you can feed your brain. What do you need to know to be able to start to optimize the way that your brain is functioning and to maintain stress resilience in the undoubtedly busy life that you are leading? Her wonderful books, you know, focus on this concept of creating a lighter, brighter you. And I just love how she takes such high-level science and turns it into really practical ways that we can make changes in regards to what we're putting on our plate for optimum results. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Dr. Delia McCab now. Welcome to Wisdom for Wellbeing. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me here today and with all of our listeners. We are so excited to soak up your wisdom specifically around, you know, feel good food. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Caitlin, for the invitation. And I guess just to get things started, you know, you've had a really interesting journey towards this passion of, you know, looking at how food fuels our brain and our sense of well-being. Would you mind sharing with listeners who you are and a little bit about your journey? With pleasure. It's always interesting to tell people the story because I think many people start out with a certain idea about what they're going to do with their lives. And then, you know, life intervenes and you change and you shift. And that's exactly what happened to me, but in a weird way. So I was busy completing my master's and I was working with a group of really smart school kids. Um, and I was looking at the psychological variables that underpinned their underachievement. You know, these were kids, the parents were saying, look, these kids are smart, but they're underachieving. The teachers were frustrated with them. The children were tired of being nagged. And so it was an interesting dynamic to, to chat to these parents and the teachers and the kids. And so what I did, I had my experimental group, which was the kids who were really battling 
but were really smart. And then I had the um, control group, which was the smart kids who were doing well at school. And I spent a lot of time with them discussing psychological variables, giving them questionnaires, asking them all sorts of questions, because I already knew what their aptitude was. I already knew what their IQ was. I already knew what their interests were. I already knew what their school marks were. So we were discussing things like family dynamics and so on. Um, and at the end of the, the, the sessions, um, that I think there were six or eight sessions that I had with these kids over a period of six or eight weeks. Um, it's 25 years ago now, so forgive me if I don't know exactly. Um, and the one question that I had a bit of space for on the questionnaire was, what is your favorite food? And every one of the children in my experimental group loved junk food. And every one of the children in the control group who were doing well didn't love junk food. They liked, you know, Sunday roast and veggies and baked potatoes and so on. And I was like, what? Because seldom in research do you find such a clear distinction between two groups. Very seldom do you see, wow, you know, this is like a huge distinction. And I thought that's really interesting. And as fate would have it, um, I was going to have my daughter. Um, I was pregnant with her, heavily pregnant. And I thought, I'm going to take some time out just to go and check this out. Because this is something that's really interesting and not something that I expected. And I couldn't write it up in my master's because it wasn't part of my protocol. So I just had this new information that I didn't know what to do with. So <laughs> I thought it'll take me a couple of months and I'll figure it out. You know, so I got my master's and all of that done. And um, I then started diving into the subject and there wasn't a lot about it out and about 25 years ago. You know, Google didn't exist. So there I was trawling off to libraries, big piles <laughs> of books, heavily pregnant, coming back one sentence in one book, nothing in other books that should have mentioned it at least some journal articles and I thought look this is something that needs to be investigated because the more I examined it the more I thought there's actually something here but people don't know about this so I really decided to to not become a talking therapist firstly because I thought to myself what's the point of trying to you know trying to help a car work better when it's not fueled you know here we have to talk to a person and try to get them to find new strategies you know to to change and and be different in their in their world and how to approach situations differently and have new behavior and their brains are malnourished it doesn't seem to make sense to me it seemed like a very illogical thing to do so i didn't want to be a talking therapist from a from an integrity perspective because i thought there's a huge missing piece of the puzzle here that isn't being addressed and so that's the beginning of my journey that's incredible. Like how powerful to see such clear results and that that prompted you to go, no, this is, this is something we really need to explore. Absolutely. It was, it was a bit distressing in the beginning because I really had to dig for information. And so I started writing it up and then I was bringing my children up because I had a son three years later and then I was feeding them according to what I was figuring out. And I was saying, well, look, you know, this is science that we now know, you know, what cell membranes need. We now know how cell membranes um, function optimally. We now know what stops them from functioning optimally. And because the brain is such a sophisticated and sensitive organ, and we have all these windows of opportunity with children's development that we can't get back again, I thought I need to make sure I'm doing this right from the beginning. And um, so that's what I did. And then I just was putting it into practice. You know, we spoke before you started recording about, you know, feeding children well and so on. And I just did this in my home. And so we would have neighborhood kids arrive at our house and they would be like, oh, this is great. And then the next day there'd be more kids who I didn't know were there to eat the same food. And I'd get mums phoning me and saying, why do children eat broccoli in your house, but they won't eat it in my house? <laughs> and it just became a process where I just was, I was basically putting into practice the theory that I was finding out. 
and that's how it evolved and here we're having a chat and listeners don't worry we have talked about doing an episode specifically for parents on how we um how we might be able to support our children specifically in this development because it's obviously an area that Dilly has heaps of knowledge as well but you know when you talk about the the concept of feeding your brain and you talk about knowing what our cells need would you mind just giving us you know an overview of, of what that means for those of us who maybe haven't thought of this concept before that the food we're putting in our body is feeding you know our brains it's feeding all the cells in our system with pleasure caitlin to make it really really simple i use this this statement and the statement is as follows that all of our thinking occurs across a huge very sophisticated and sensitive neural network all of which depends on the nutrients that we consume and other lifestyle choices like sleep and exercise so when we consider this vast and very sophisticated network you know, because it's between our ears and because it's small, I think people don't, you know, we, we are the only species that can think about thinking. So we call this metacognition. And I think that's kind of like where we get caught because the organ that we're using to think is the organ that we need to think about nurturing. And I don't think it comes naturally for people to consider this because we just use our brain and we get on with life and we have thoughts and we have emotions, we have feelings, you know, we do what we're doing, we get upset, you know, we, we get happy, we have all of these emotions, but we never really think about the fact that they're all grounded in neurons and the way neurons communicate with each other via electrochemical impulses. Um, if you really think about it, it's kind of weird. The brain is dark, you know, it never sees any light. It gets electrical impulses which stimulate it to experience the world the way we experience it, but it all relies on nutrients. And for me, the funny thing was, the first thing that I kind of like discovered about the human brain was that 60% of the dry weight of the human brain is made up of fat. Now, that means you take all the water out and what's left is 60% fat. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I just need to learn a little bit about fats and oils and I'll, I'll, I'll understand this. And 25 years later, I'm still learning. So it was really a huge eye opener. It's one of the most complicated areas of nutrition is fats and oils. And it's the, the one that most people are very, very confused about because the specific fat that the brain requires to work optimally is a fat that is very sophisticated because it's got a lot of double bonds. Now, without going into biochemistry, those double bonds mean that that fat molecule is very, very, um, magnetic to oxygen, if I can put it that way to make it really simple. So that means that those cell membranes that have got that fat in them are very flexible, they're very malleable, they can respond very quickly to any input that comes their way. And that's what we want in the brain. We want a brain that's flexible, malleable, and that can respond to the environment. When the cell membranes are not made of the right kind of fat, then we have those senior moments. You know, you walk into a room and what am I doing here? Kind of, um, or otherwise you can't remember a person's name or what was the movie you watched yesterday? All of those are symptoms of cells that are not working optimally because they're not responding quickly. They're not holding on to memories. They're not holding on to skills and knowledge the way they should. And it all boils down to what's going on in that cell membrane because that cell membrane is the interface between the next neuron that it has to communicate with across a synapse. So, 
discovering the, the, the truth about fats and oils was like a huge epiphany for me because I realized then that I need to make sure that my children and myself and my husband and everyone that I could possibly convince um, to consume the right kinds of fats and oils because it's not just your brain that needs them, although it gets first dibs. All our survival organs need these fats. So brain, survival organ, heart, survival organ, adrenal glands, survival organ, um, reproductive organs, survival organs. So they're the organs that actually grab onto these essential fats first because we need to, to make sure we have them to survive and obviously to thrive. So tell me about these fats, because we get really mixed messages in our society. We live in a society where often, you know, we see on the labels, you know, fat free and, you know, it's loaded with sugar and all of these perhaps confusing messages. So what are the types of fats that we actually need to be able to thrive and to develop that flexible brain, which I think is a wonderful metaphor for how we might want to exist in our lives in a flexible, responsive manner? Absolutely. It's a, it is a good analogy. Um, my fat and oil lecture takes three and a half hours, so I'm not going to bore so, anyone with that. Now. Listeners, if you really want the specifics, please make sure you head to lighterhue.com to, um, to be able to get all of these details. But I guess just a summary, I, is it all fats are created equal or? Absolutely not. And the funny thing is when I got involved and I saw how complex it was, I actually made myself a little chart. And I divided the chart up into columns. And that chart actually became part of the chapter in my book because it's a very good, um, you know, like one glance. I know what's going on now because in the chart, there's a, a, a column for saturated fat. And then there's a column for monounsaturated fat. And then there's two columns for polyunsaturated fat. That's the omega-3 and the omega-6. So in an instant, you can look at the chart and you can see, okay, these are different. And saturated fats are different to monounsaturated fats, are different to polyunsaturated fats at the molecular level. So it's really when you look at the, what, what the molecule looks like that you get a feel for, oh my goodness, yes, it's different. And because it looks different, it behaves different in the human body. And that's the key which people don't really get. It's actually right down to the molecular level. So when I used to have the pleasure of doing in-person workshops, I used to have my attendees have a little jar of um, coconut oil, which is a saturated fat. And then I'd give, they'd have another little jar, which had sheer nut butter in it, which is also a saturated fat. And then I'd get them to touch both of these oils and they would see the difference in consistency in the saturated fats. So they fall in the same column, but their consistency is different. And then they'd go, oh my goodness. And then this was a way for me to show people physically, you know, um, the difference in the, the fat molecules, even within the same category. So the complexity is deep, but we'll make it simple because mostly saturated fats are solid at room temperature. And that's regardless of whether they are from animals or from plants because tropical plants also produce saturated fats. Things like coconut, things like shea nut, but things like cacao, they, they're all saturated fats. And of course, animal products, you know, cheese, butter, and the lard of animals. So those are all saturated fats. But the interesting thing is that plant saturated fats behave differently in the human body to the way animal saturated fats behave. And that's, that's another conversation, but it's also basically down to the molecular level. And this is interesting because you may recall I mean, you, you're younger than me, but you may recall there was a time where coconut oil was terrible. It was toxic. It was bad. You couldn't eat it. It raised your cholesterol. That was what the media and what doctors told us. And then suddenly, like overnight, it shifted. 
eat coconut oil. It's fabulous. It's good for you. And everyone was like, what? Confused? And they were confused because it takes up to 17 years for information that researchers uncover to reach the man and woman in the street. And they had discovered that all the people that were living on coconut oil on these islands where coconuts fall on your head, these people were not dying from heart disease. They weren't obese. They didn't have high cholesterol levels. And they said, hmm, that's pretty interesting. What's going on here? And then that information slowly started to drip down to coconut oil manufacturers <laughs> and, you know, the man in the street and the woman in the street. So th th that's part of the complexity of the saturated fats. Monounsaturated fats are pretty simple to remember because mostly they're Mediterranean in origin. And most people remember olive oil is a monounsaturated fat. And so, you know, things like cashew nuts, pecan nuts, um, even peanuts, which are technically a legume because they grow under the ground, they are also monounsaturated um, fats contained in those products. But the thing about saturated fats and monounsaturated fats, which most people don't know, is that the body can make them with ease. Okay. What does that mean? So your body is able to produce it themselves, itself, essentially. Wow. Because fats are so important for our survival. So we had to have a mechanism whereby the body could make the most basic saturated fats and most basic monounsaturated fats. And how does it do that? It does that using excess carbohydrates. And that's why the low-fat industry was such a fail. Because, you know, don't eat any fat. It's bad for you. It's going to make you fat. Hey, but load up on your sugar. Oops. Everyone's still putting on weight. What's going on? Oh, we didn't understand the biochemistry. So... That was part of the problem. So now we know that excess carbs, actually the way excess carbs, the way their little molecules work together, they all tie together and they become saturated or monounsaturated fats. And then we store them <laughs> because that's what the body does with excess. So that's part of the story of um, saturated and monounsaturated fats. But the story about polyunsaturated fats is even more weird because these fats your body cannot make. You have to get them in your diet. And over the last 100 years, we have been getting less and less and less of these essential fats because, firstly, the omega-3s more so than the omega-6s because of food supply and farmers realizing that they can grow omega-6 polyunsaturated fats a lot faster because they're warm weather crops versus omega-3 crops, which are harder to grow, and the oil from them goes rancid more quickly. And we're back again now to a discussion about the molecular structure of omega-3 and omega-6. But the bottom line is we didn't know that they were essential until basically the end of the 1960s. And we only discovered this because of an interesting um, story about a man and his girlfriend who basically ran away from the lab he was working in and they stole the rats that were in the lab. So basically what happened, he was working in the lab that discovered vitamin E and um, it was a fantastic discovery and the scientists were all excited about that. But he said there's something else going on with these rats, which hasn't anything to do with vitamin E. And his supervisor didn't like that idea. But what he had stumbled upon, he had stumbled upon essential fatty acids. But his supervisor didn't want to follow, follow along. And the woman who had been looking after the rats in the lab, they fell in love. Him and her. And they decided... Like <laughs> <laughs> romance in a laboratory and it's an amazing story because what they did he got accepted to work in another lab across the country in america and so what he did him and his new girlfriend the rat carer who was also a very smart scientist they took the rats hid them in their car 
and traveled across the country to the new lab. Um, but it wasn't really okay to bring rats into the hotel. So they had to kind of smuggle the rats in because they didn't want to let go of the rats because the rats were holding the information about these essential fats, you see. So when they got to the new lab, he started working on, on these essential fats. And then he discovered that what was actually happening with these rats, that they, they were consuming essential fatty acids as well as the vitamin E. And that was a confounding variable in, in the experiment. And then they discovered that essential fats are actually critically important for, for mammals, um, and not just, just mammals, but, but specifically for our development, brain development, central nervous system development, hormonal function, adrenal function, basically every cell in the body uses essential fats and needs them. But what has happened over the, the, the last hundred years, as I said, because of a whole lot of influences, we're not getting enough of those essential fats. And as our consumption of those essential fats have gone down, so our mental illness has been rising. And there are researchers that have actually studied that in a lot of detail, you know, how this, the graph is actually working as our consumption decreases, our mental ill health is, is increasing. And obviously there are a lot of variables related to that, but if at the cellular level, that, that cell is not functioning optimally, it cannot respond to the environment optimally. And this is where the challenge comes in. So most people are getting a lot of omega-6 because food manufacturers prefer omega-6 because of what I've mentioned, and they're not getting enough omega-3. So this is a, it's a very important discussion. What, what would contain omega-3s for listeners who are going, okay, how can I, how can I rectify this or balance this? What, where would we look to, to consume more omega-3s? We get omega-3s from things like flaxseed. We find them in sunflower seeds. We find them in pepita seeds, pumpkin seeds. We find them in sesame seeds, and we find them in chia seeds. But the secret, Caitlin, is to crush them. Uh -huh. They need to be so grinding those flax seeds before they go on your breakfast or chia seeds. Absolutely. And, and does that hold for pumpkin seeds as well? I guess you chew those a little bit more. You do chew them more, but it's very hard to chew them to get the maximum amount of essential fats from them. So I just suggest people grind them all up and then you get a good ratio between omega-6 and omega-3. And obviously, I think it goes without saying to avoid shelf-stable oils. So when people walk down those golden aisles at Woolies or Coles or wherever, just ignore all those oils. Only buy the organic olive oil and ignore the rest because all of them are shelf-stable oils that have gone through a whole lot of processing, which is another another podcast episode. <laughs> so much wisdom here. And oh, I guess with all of this, so we're kind of hearing a bit about fats and the fact that that's really, really important for our brain and for functionally optimally, and that there is this relationship, particularly between these essential fatty oils and mental health. Something else that I know you've spoken a bit about is water. <laughs> How does water relate to our brain function? Because that's something, you know, I've got some sitting here on my desk, but you know, as a society, I, um, I think that we maybe don't drink, you've got, you've got yours as well, but, but so many people have water goals, water consumption goals. So why is that what's going on there and, and why do we need it? Look, as far as the brain goes, 78% of the brain's volume is made up of water. So when you consider that is actually more of a percentage than, than, than fat and Water is critical for the brain. There's a lot of evidence to support a lack of water with poor concentration, poor focus, um, poor grades for children in school, and of course, that, that dehydration headache that people get when they haven't drunk enough water. And of course, it affects digestive health, which is directly related to brain health and so on and so forth. However, it is also possible to overhydrate. And, you know, when people consume vast quantities of water and also have a really good diet, 
So it's not full of processed foods, which are denuded of any moisture. They can actually end up having too much water. And that's a bit of a challenge as well. So it's important to get the balance right. So I think you need to consider, the first thing you need to consider is your activity level. If you live in a climate where there's a lot of heat and you're sweating a lot, you're losing a lot of water. And so, you know, replenishing that water is important. If you're getting older, and this is something interesting, the part of the brain that registers thirst actually starts atrophying. And so that's why elderly people become, you know, it becomes a dangerous situation for them in really hot weather because they don't realize they're thirsty. And so they don't drink. So you should actually be having a bit of water before you feel thirsty, because by the time you feel thirsty, your brain's already going, wow, we've got a problem here. But it's difficult to, to say how much for each person. And I know everybody wants that magical number. You know, for me, um, I know if I have three or four glasses of water a day, that's perfectly fine for me, because I also eat food that isn't highly processed. And I consume a lot of the right fats, which also helps my water balance. And I don't sweat profusely because my climate isn't extremely hot, excepting when it is, then I drink more. So every person has to decide for themselves, but they need to watch as they get older and they don't feel thirsty, which is why having a water goal, you know, even pouring out your four glasses of water a day and putting it in a jug, then you know I need to get through that. But you don't want to drink so much that you're piddling all night because then you're not sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> so we just need to, to balance it. <laughs> balance it. It's a really interesting point, isn't it? That that it's a matter of getting to know ourselves and, and checking in with our diet, our activity level, our climate, which, you know, we'd all love these quick fixes, but the quick fixes are not necessarily real fixes, are they? You know, it's not necessarily bringing us to a place of holistic health or something that's sustainable. Absolutely. And I think we've been trained by the media um, by, by medicine, we've been trained to just, you know, swallow a tablet, everything's fixed, do one thing, and it's all good. It doesn't work that way. We are highly, highly complex organs, you know, this, this a human being is, is the most complex organism in the universe. And so wanting a one stop shop magic bullet, this is how everybody should do it. But I do there is a, um, in my book, I do actually have a formula, which I say to people, if they follow that really broadly, then, they, then it could be okay. And I I'm, I'm, don't have it on my desk here, so I can't recall it just off, off, off the bat. But the formula, I don't actually follow the formula. I put it in there for the kind of people that say, I want something to follow. So that's why it's there. I definitely prefer your approach, you know, not having something simple and quick, having knowledge about how we're behaving, how we're feeling, our exercise level and all of that. But which speaking of listeners, <laughs> get the book and start to work through it to learn all of these things, because there's just so much more that we're not going to be able to cover in our time together. But, you know, when you talk there about about our gut, you know, that the water affects our gut as well. What um, why do we need to be so aware of our gut? I mean, lots of us are hearing now about the gut being so important, but, you know, not everyone's sure why or what that sort of means for them and, and, and their diet and lifestyle. I think the story about the gut and, and how important gut and brain health is and gut and overall health has been around for a long time. But I think it's become more accessible to people now because we've managed to find a way to actually explain it really simply. And so to explain it really simply, it is as follows. The gut takes the food that we consume, turns it into tiny little compounds that we then absorb into our bloodstream across the gut lining. The problem with our life today and the food that we consume and our stress levels, anxiety, and poor sleep 
is that that gut lining becomes compromised. And then what happens? The food particles aren't properly digested and then they cross into the bloodstream and they're bigger than they should be. They contain compounds that they shouldn't contain because the gut bacteria hasn't had enough time to work on them the way they should be worked on. And also many of the gut bacteria are not present to be able to break them down the way they should be broken down. So then they enter the bloodstream and suddenly the immune system says, oi, there's a problem here. There are things in the bloodstream that shouldn't be here. And an inflammatory response is initiated in the body. Now, this is a problem because that inflammatory response isn't just located in the area where that compound is initially found. It then starts spreading throughout the body. And the same challenges that the, that the gut barrier has happens to the blood-brain barrier. And the blood-brain barrier is what separates toxins in the bloodstream from entering the brain. So when the blood-brain barrier becomes compromised due to inflammation, things that shouldn't enter the brain start entering the brain. And then we have a wildfire because then we have neurons that become inflamed. And you know, like a battleground, when there's a war zone, it's not just one area that gets damaged, the surrounding area gets damaged as well. And of course, this sets up a cascade of damage across the brain. So we now know that a lot of the, the um, activity that happens in the gut directly impacts the brain because of that pathway. And I, I've obviously explained it really simply. And I wrote a blog post about this, a recent blog post. So if anyone's interested, they can go, can go and read it in more detail. And I've got all the references there as well. But just as a simple example, even our sleep patterns affect our gut bacteria. Because when they investigated um, people who'd done long distance traveling in the days before COVID, <laughs> um, they had a look at their gut bacteria and they saw that even after one night of compromised sleep, the gut bacteria had shifted to a more inflammatory style gut bacteria. And so it doesn't mean that the bacteria are inflammatory, it just means that they are they're setting the scene for inflammation to happen and for the gut bacteria to become damaged. So even one night of compromised sleep impacts that gut lining and the gut bacteria. So we know that it's not just the food we eat, it's, the, it's our stress levels which also impact the gut lining because of cortisol. It's an ongoing cascade. So we can't really separate the gut from brain health in any way, shape or form. It's just a little complex to get your head around it, how it works. I think this is hugely important. You know, like when I see clients in private practice, one of the most common challenges that the people are reporting is having difficulties with sleep, which is associated with what's going on in their mind. And, and, you know, probably many things, I think diet and exercise included, but then if that's then having this effect on the gut, which then sets off our levels of inflammation and, you know, causes perhaps an anxiety response anyway, which makes us more prone to sleep difficulties. This is, this is a huge cycle. And what we put into our bodies is one area where we do have very direct control. And it, it's perhaps more of, I don't want to say quick fix, but we might maybe see some of those changes sooner than we might see changes in different domains. So it just shows the power of food and feeding our brain and bodies. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's research that shows that we can actually affect our gut bacteria within a matter of four days wow. by shifting our diet. The four days is a really short period of time if you really set your mind to it. So what I suggest people do, and I mentioned that in my blog article, they eat a lot more prebiotic foods. Because, you know, people buy probiotics and they spend vast fortunes on, on probiotics the, the, to go one step deeper and not having to buy it 
probiotics is to rather buy prebiotics and you buy them with your fresh produce. You don't buy them in a capsule form. So you buy the kinds of food that produce or that contain the kind of fiber that allows the good bacteria to proliferate. So then they've got enough food and then they start growing and proliferating. And then what they do is make sure that you don't need a probiotic. You've got the prebiotics. They're creating their own food for the, the good bacteria. The challenge is, and this is an important thing to mention, because when the gut bacteria get impacted, there's something interesting that happens. The gut bacteria that are exceptionally good at extracting every single last calorie from food proliferate. And the gut bacteria that are good at ignoring some calories start dying down. Now, what does that mean? That means that you, even if you eat really well, the food that you're eating is being used up so carefully and wonderfully by these very, very obsessive bacteria that you'll end up putting on weight. So this is a challenge. So when we, when we talk about changing gut bacteria, we're talking about allowing the gut bacteria that kind of like ignore calories to proliferate so that we don't have a, a, a gut bacteria that's saying hold on to every last calorie and store it. So this is why people, you know, they can say I'm eating really well, but I'm not losing weight. One of the reasons that happening, that's happening is because their stress level is really high and that also impacts these, these gut bacteria. So they behave differently and then they, you know, they hold on to, to ca calories, whereas we want to just ignore some calories. You know, we don't want to be so good at collecting calories. <laughs> uh, so that's also, once again, a, a very simple explanation, but it's the ratio of the bacteria that becomes imbalanced with poor sleep, lack of exercise, too much stress and processed foods, and also chemicals from the environment, pesticides and, and so on. So all of that impacts these very, very sensitive bacteria and, and change the ratio. Where would you recommend people start in that regards if they're sitting here and going, oh, well, what, what are the prebiotics, you know, the whole foods that I, that I should? And I say that in air quotes because I know it might be different for everyone and we could even talk a little bit about intolerances, but the people could be ingesting to best fuel, perhaps losing weight in the time of COVID and post New Year's. Where, where would people start if that's something that's, that's on their radar? I think the most important thing is to look at the kinds of food that have got the kinds of fiber that produce prebiotics. And those are very easy to find, in fact. And one of my favorite ones is artichokes. So I make a hummus and I put artichokes hearts in the hummus and it's delicious. And you're just getting those, those beautiful prebiotics with that. And then things like onions, um, leeks, garlic, those are, you know, the alum family, they have got wonderful prebiotics in them. So consuming more of them is important. And even just things like lettuce, um, things like cauliflower, even things like broccoli, they may not have prebiotics in them, but they've got a lot of fiber in them. So they then support the good bacteria that can then proliferate. So it's about eating a lot more fresh produce, you know, so that you can up the bacteria because once you start doing that, everything starts improving because the fiber is actually what feeds, what feeds the, 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 um, the good bacteria. But really, I'd start with artichokes. They're really delicious. Is that and recipe onion, in your cookbook? It is. It's in, Perfect. My, it's in my first book and it's a, it's a really good one. And I use it all the time. We never without hummus in our family because we 
everything. And but um, such a fabulous snack food. And what a way of like increasing what you're gaining from eating, from eating a food that is really simple to make. And it sounds like the artichokes just give it that extra boost. So listeners, if you're curious of ideas, <laughs> you can, you can get a lot of these recipes, then it sounds like out of your cookbooks, very literally. So we're not left creating or figuring out how we pair things ourselves. Some of the work is done for us. Absolutely. So with, with this idea that we, you know, want to be consuming food and, you know, that it is going to change how our gut is operating, it's going to change how our body is metabolizing. Is there anywhere that you would, I guess, advise us as a starting ground in regards to food intolerances? Should people be getting tested? Because, you, you know, you mentioned that if our gut is having a tough time, that infl- inflammation in our body goes up and that this has a negative effect and intolerances is something I know you talk about being related to inflammation. Where will we start on figuring that stuff out? <laughs> I think the first important thing to say to people, and this may seem really odd, um, I'm putting together an online course. And the first thing that I'm asking them to do on one page is to deeply examine their problem foods. And people know what their problem foods are. These are the kinds of foods that they love and they can't do without. So they find excuses to eat this food and they find excuses to defend the food. And they may not notice after they initially eat the food, but maybe two, even three days later, they may notice a bloated belly, they may notice a skin reaction, they may notice a mood reaction, a mood challenge. And I'll I'll use my son as an example, because when he was about five or six, we started noticing that every now and again, he would get into a really bad mood. And he wasn't a moody child at all. He was actually a really happy healthy little boy but every now and again he would get so cranky and I started watching when this happened and I realized it was when he had bread and we didn't eat a lot of bread as a family we actually mostly ate rye bread and kamut bread which are you know a better form um, of bread but then I thought this is definitely a pattern I watched it for a while and so I took him off to be tested and so he had a lot of gluten antibodies in his bloodstream And those gluten antibodies were setting off an inflammatory response that was affecting his mood. And the more research I did into the subject, the more I realized that this is actually one of the things that that, that does happen. It does impact people's mood. So we immediately took him off all gluten and I promised him that he would never be deprived. So from then on, I started baking and cooking gluten-free. And I've done that ever since. So he never has to go without. And he's 22 now and he reads every single food label and he avoids gluten like the plague because he explained to me one day, He said, mom, I know that I've eaten gluten when I wasn't aware of it because I'm suddenly cranky for no reason. Wow. What an insightful young man as well. Like he's, he's checked in with his body and noticed. Absolutely. So for him, it became, it was like a, you know, it was a no brainer for him. He was going to avoid the food that made him feel bad. And so that's what he did. The challenge is as we get older, I think what happens is that we eat so many different foods and we are so busy with our lives. And so we don't actually take the time to look at what we're eating and what the effects could possibly be. And what I normally do with people is I'll, I'll work out a chart and then we'll leave out certain foods for four days and then we'll reintroduce them and see if the symptom comes back in the next four days. And it's very time consuming and it isn't pleasant to do that. And if someone wants to go and have a blood test, they can have that done instead of doing this 
But doing it this way really gives you a good insight into what you're eating. And you suddenly go, oh my goodness, I've been eating X three days in a row. You know, and the minute you start doing that, then your body can build up an intolerance to that food. The problem is that when you have a food intolerance, it also, it also stimulates the release of adrenaline, which is like a stress response in the body, which is what we want to avoid as well, because that on its own stimulates another inflammatory response. So dealing with food intolerance is, ex is extremely important. And as I said earlier, one of the first things is, you know, you get a bloated belly you know, that it just doesn't suit you. And it can happen over time. For me, what happened, I used to be able to eat eggs really with no hassle. And I didn't eat a lot of them and I made sure that they were organic and free range and all of that. But there came a point probably about six years ago where I realized every time I ate eggs, I really got an uncomfortable belly. My belly was just bloated. And I checked and I checked and I said, eggs don't suit me anymore. And then I did some reading up about that and it apparently can happen to people. And I'd gone through a very stressful period. So I thought maybe that is what actually sparked my body off not to want egg anymore because egg is very very a very high concentration of protein and somehow my gut didn't want it and so occasionally now i may have something with some egg in it and it's not as bad but i still notice it because i'm on, on you know i'm on the alert so it's kind of like a process of checking in with your body and seeing what's happening but i can send you some resources for people to actually get bloods done that would be fabulous. We can put those in the show notes. So listeners, you'll be able to then, yeah, follow up and, and check in on these, you know, opportunities to see what's happening, you know, in your bloods at a cellular level. Absolutely. Because it's definitely important to know that because as I said, that, that inflammatory response goes across the blood brain barrier. And then, you know, we end up with challenges in our most sophisticated and sensitive organ, which we really don't need. No, no. And, and, you know, kind of particularly, you know, we're having this interview during the time of COVID and, and I think we're going to be in this time of COVID for a while yet, you know, and it's a tough time for people. So if there's something we can be doing to lessen some of that distress, and it's as, I don't want to say as simple as the food we put on our plate, because food does have a lot of meaning for a lot of people. But you said something quite insightful before we started the interview today that, you know, emotions get caught up in it. And we want to use our food as a fuel process how can we make the shift what's just i mean maybe a final kind of key point that you could give us before we go around how food most effectively operates for us and how we can disentangle this emotional element i think that's it's a complicated question and i love this question but it's going to take a while to answer i think the most important thing to to keep in mind is that our blood glucose needs to remain stable and i'm going to explain this you know, we've got nowhere to store fuel in our brain. There's no place to store fuel. It's a tiny space you know, it's a huge place in a tiny place. Um, and, you know, we know where we store extra fuel on our bodies. You know, we can see that as fat, um, but there's no place in our brain. So our brain really relies on stable blood glucose to be supplying the fuel to keep our neurons working and they work 24 seven. So when we do anything, that impacts that blood glucose, we're going to have blood glucose dips and highs and dips and highs. And there are a couple of issues related to that. One of the issues is that the more often we have blood glucose ups and downs, the greater the chances are that any excess carbs will be stored as fat. That's just a biochemical response because of this up and down, up and down. The body goes, oh, there's a problem here. We're just going to store some, some energy in case this problem doesn't go away. So that's the first thing. The second thing that happens is that we've unfortunately got four times more cortisol receptors in our deep abdominal fat than anywhere else in our body. 
And cortisol being related to stress, just in case listeners are um, putting that piece together. Absolutely. So this is the challenge. So when we are very stressed, we end up putting on weight in our belly region because cortisol stimulates the release of enzymes, which stimulate the deposition of fat. And because there are four times more cortisol receptors in the gut area, that's where the fat gravitates to. So that's the second important point. The third important point, which is more complex, is that when our blood glucose goes up, down, up, down, up, down, we stimulate an adrenaline response, which is separate to this, the, the, the fat deposition that this up, down, up, down is causing. So the body then goes into a feeling of being anxious just because the blood glucose is going up and down. And that then leads to, which is the fourth point, people gravitating towards fast release energy foods which are mostly nutrient deficient and high in refined sugar. Because those kinds of foods actually release opioids in the bloodstream, which calm us down. Wow. So it's a kind of like ongoing issue if we don't keep our blood glucose stable, because then we have the added problem, which psychology tells us happens because of the way the brain works, we then build up a habit. So then we grab for that chocolate bar when we feel stressed because we know that immediately afterwards we'll feel better because our stress response is dampened by the opioid release. So the bottom line, I think, that I want your listeners to just keep in mind is keeping blood glucose stable is gold because when blood glucose is kept stable, the brain can respond optimally to whatever is facing it. We won't make knee-jerk decisions. We don't grab that chocolate bar. We, we consider our options. We think long-term. It allows our prefrontal cortex, which is another discussion, to actually function optimally. And so we don't have make knee-jerk decisions and we don't have that heightened sense of anxiety. So then, you know, instead of making the decision to watch the news that night, we'll go, that's not serving us. I'm going to rather read an uplifting book. Instead of going into social media again, we say, that doesn't suit me. I'm going to do something else, maybe go for a walk or meditate. And especially during this time in COVID, we need to grab hold of every single little bit of control we have because everything seems out of control. And so if we concern ourselves just simply, which I know sounds like a very simple thing to do, is keeping our blood glucose stable because that has the huge ramifications when we maintain that blood glucose stability. That's so insightful. That's incredible. And what an empowering thing for us to reflect on. You know, we can control our blood glucose levels by what we're putting into our system if we're aware and if we recognize some of these cycles. So maybe, you know, listeners, you might start to diarize, you know, when you're reaching for things, what's going on in your system, your diet, and definitely get in contact with, um, with Dr. McCabe. So, you know, people can go and get a copy of Feed Your Brain, Seven Steps to a Lighter, Brighter You, or Feed Your Brain, the cookbook, and head to your website, lighterbrighteryou.com life. All of these links will be in the show notes, but where else can people find out about what else you're offering? Because you've mentioned a few courses that you've got upcoming and some of your blog posts. Is it easiest just to head through your um, website or where else can we connect? I think people can find where they, where they live on social media. I'll try to, you know, touch base on a few places. I'm on LinkedIn um, under Dr. Um, Delia McCabe. Um, I'm also on Instagram and on Instagram, I put recipes and little quotes and little insights about how the brain functions. 
and it's, I don't have a huge following, but I know that lots of people come to me. That's how we found each other. (laughs) Absolutely. So I don't have a huge following, but I always put up value so that people can walk away with something that they can actually use in action, because I think that that's important. So they're not going to find out about eyelash extensions or the best lipstick there. Um, but they'll find inner out about beauty. things that can, <laughs> yeah, the, the inner beauty and inner health. I, I want people to glow with health, Caitlin, because you know when you glow with health, you can really live your best life. So yeah, there's Instagram. I've also just started a Facebook group for women who want to deal with overwhelm and stress, and it's a very very small group. We're starting off small. I'm not advertising to get people into that group, but if people want to join, I answer questions. I post videos in the group we talk about real things you know like sleep challenges you know where to find the right fats and oils what supplements actually work so they can go to that um to that facebook group and i'd happily welcome them into that group would it be okay um, if we put a link to that in the show notes as well just so people can easily access it yeah brilliant absolutely we can do that and then my courses um, I'm going to be producing um, an online course, which doesn't, I've got videos in the course and everything, you know, so I'm going to be training people, but it's not going to be handholding. I'm working on another um, coaching group, which is going to be a three month group where I'll be able to hold the hands of the woman that worked through the, the group with me. And if anyone's interested in that, please let them reach out to me and I can chat to them about that. Um, you know, we're going to really get down to the nitty gritty. We're going to do hormone testing to find out, you know, what the estrogen and progesterone and testosterone is doing. We're going to have a look at genetic um, polymorphisms, which are more prevalent than people are aware of. We're going to look at their personality. We're going to see what their stress level is currently. We're going to really be doing a deep dive so that they can discover a calmness within themselves that can help them withstand the madness that seems to be going on in the world because it's the only place we're ever going to find calm and peace is within. And we need to be able to find that. And I'm, you know, I can do that from a nutritional perspective because of my knowledge and from a neurological and psychological perspective, I can do that too because of my background there. So that will be a, a hand holding experience for three months. So anyone's interested, they can, they can put, put their hand down, but also, you know, people can just opt into my website if they want to, there's a three day um, brain diet there they can get a taste of the kinds of food that i suggest and um, then i'll talk to them via email and you know we can start a conversation i think that this is a conversation that more people need to be having with themselves to start with because the challenge with the brain caitlin and i just want to mention this because i think it's very sobering but it's important for people to understand this because of the sophistication and the sensitivity of the human brain when it starts breaking down it's already been broken down to the point where it's nearly impossible to replenish it unless you make huge, huge differences. So in all the years that it's breaking down, it's, it's practicing workarounds to get itself around those damaged areas so that you can still function. But eventually it gets to the point where it can't do those workarounds anymore. And at that point, that's when you really start noticing that your brain isn't functioning optimally. And at that point, it's nearly impossible because it's been happening for 20 years already. So if ever there was a, um, you know, a call to people to be preventative versus trying to cure something, it's in relation to this beautiful, beautiful brain that we've been given that works so wonderfully when we respect it. 
That's so powerful. And having watched, you know, um, a grandparent with Alzheimer's and some of the illnesses that we are kind of considering might be food and diet related. Now, I think that's hugely powerful and motivating and, and this is our time. This is our opportunity. So thank you so much for your wisdom and, you know, for guiding us on this journey and providing us so many ways that we can connect and can continue this conversation. And hopefully for some of us getting a little bit of hand holding along the way, checking in with hormone levels and getting that sophisticated understanding of ourselves is, is a really empowering offering. So thank you for your time and for your wisdom, Delia. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Caitlin. It was lovely meeting you. Thank you. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Delia McCabe as much as I did. Her ability to take these incredible concepts that are no doubt, at least for me, quite high level and really integrate them into what we're putting onto our plate and how that affects our well-being is vital information that I think we all need. You know, this idea of feeding our brain is huge. I have no doubt we'll be grabbing artichokes, each and every one of us, right? And grabbing some olive oil, getting our avocados and coconut oil, and taking care of ourselves so that we can maintain that stable blood sugar she talks to. So as Delia mentioned, she has a number of resources that are available. I would very much invite you to head through to the show notes where you'll be able to click through and join in with her Lighter, Brighter You Facebook group, and of course, head to lighterbrighteryou.life to be able to access the extra resources that she has there. We are going to be talking to Delia in a few weeks around children's health and nutrition. So what we thought we would do is actually open that conversation up to you. If you are a parent or someone who works with kids and you're interested in how we can support kids in eating well, send your questions. You know, I am at Dr. Caitlin on Instagram and Facebook and on Facebook, we've got at wisdom for wellbeing pod, or you can go hello at drcaitlin.com. Send your emails through. We would love to be able to make sure we are addressing questions and providing resources focused on the challenges and the questions that you have. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for connecting and any questions that we might be able to serve you by answering in the next episode. All right, bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.